This episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge is sponsored by CellPoint Mobile, whose voyage booking solution enables airlines to increase direct channel revenues and conversions. Visit www.cellpointmobile.com slash voyage dash aw to learn more. That's www.cellpointmobile.com slash voyage dash aw. Imagine for a moment you're an airline and you get this daunting piece of news. Your fuel costs are going to rise by a third year over year in a given quarter. Knowing that, would you expect to be popping champagne when you reported quarterly earnings? Well, Delta in its second quarter saw fuel costs increase by 33%. And while we don't know whether there was any bubbly, we do know they weathered it just fine. Uh, Jason, can we have champagne? No, we don't work for Delta. Oh, I just like champagne. Well, the Airline Weekly Lounge does have a bar. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly, and that voice you hear is Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly and our resident enophile. Other carriers reported besides Delta, including Norwegian, who not surprisingly was at the other end of the spectrum. Plus, we'll talk about JetBlue's new aircraft order, Boeing's partnership with Embraer, and an airline called Peach and the significance behind its full-year results. It's all coming up right now. Thanks for joining us. So Delta had a great second quarter. It wasn't their best ever. In fact, their operating margin fell to 16% from 18% the year before. But the story clearly was that Delta manages to sail along despite some huge cost increases. Seth, did their results surprise you? Well, it didn't surprise me when they finally came out because they had given so much such precise guidance that you kind of knew what it was going to look like. But, uh, you know, even there, yeah, kind of came out toward the better end of expectations. Uh, you know, all that in the context, yeah, of, of rising fuel costs that, that Delta is dealing with just like, uh, everybody else. Um, you know, this, this was largely a revenue story. Um, just exceptional strength, uh, 5% gain in unit revenues, you know, transatlantic markets strong, despite all the low costs, competition and all the rest of it trans-pacific markets uh strong as well uh and uh yeah no an, an airline that's that's just doing very very well on the revenue side uh and and at least you know, somewhat getting its hands around the uh the, the 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 unit cost issues aside from uh fuel although those you know, for all u.s airlines remain a concern uh, labor costs of, of course still considerably higher uh than where they than where they were in past years, but uh, you know what matters per se isn't uh, you know the revenues in a vacuum or the cost in a vacuum. It's uh, how the two come together to produce profits. And Delta, although as you said, still you know off its highs, doing very very well. And how much is the Korean Air joint venture contributing to that success on the Trans-Pacific market? Importantly, it's it's producing large unit revenue gains. Delta says uh, uh, on routes to Seoul. Uh, so this is good news for Delta, probably even better news for Korean Air, just because by definition, Korean Air, the smaller airline, you know, this is a larger percentage of what they do. And uh, so you have to imagine, and, you know, I meant to check this before, but, uh, you know, 
if you look at their uh, their share performance last week, let's uh, you always have to be careful about doing this stuff live because you could be pro- proven wrong. But uh, yeah, the Korean Air shares up uh, up four uh, percent last week, which is even more than Delta's two percent rise. Right, so the, so there you go. Um, good news for for uh, for both airlines. Uh, Korean Air probably very happy that it sort of finally gave in to to uh, Delta's. Uh, well, I guess a mix at varying points over the years of pressure and uh, and, and more more gentle cajol- gentle cajoling to um to uh, put together a joint venture. That one clearly is doing well, and, and for Delta, of course, that that's just one of several. It has its you know Air France, KLM, Alitalia joint venture, joint its Virgin Atlantic one. Those two are coming together now into one stronger joint venture. Uh, the one with Aeromexico just turned a year old. Uh, you know, there's Virgin Australia, a smaller one, but one Delta is happy to have. Uh, you know, WestJet's coming, and those are just the true joint ventures. Not to mention, uh, the, the, you know, Gold, China Eastern, Jet Airways, other you know close uh, partners that Delta has, and in, in, in uh, many cases, close equity partners, where it actually owns part of the airline, in addition to having the commercial relationship. The one weak international market in Delta's report was Latin America. Is that cause for concern for other airlines that might have more exposure to that region? Maybe an airline like American Airlines? Yeah, that's the one. Uh, you know, we're, we're, Latin America is a lot more important to American uh, than it is to Delta or United. Latin America for American is sort of like uh, Asia is for, for United. You know, this one this one region that uh, that really matters uh, a lot to that airline, uh, you know, pro- probably an overstatement to say as goes Latin America, so goes American Airlines, because these days it's just such a globally diversified airline. Uh, so, so you know, by no means a, a, is it a preponderance of, of, of their business, but uh, but it's, yeah, more important to them than it is to, uh, to Delta. Uh, and so when Delta talks about weakness in, in Latin America, you can kind of project that and assume that that weakness is, is there for American too, and that it's probably more important for American uh, than it is for Delta. American, by the way, reports its earnings. Oh, uh, let's see, July 26th. What's that next Thursday? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about that then. And by the way, when we talk about Latin American, uh, you know, weakness, uh, Latin America is a big place. Uh, and, and, you know, Delta was especially talking about places, if you think about the places where, where currencies are weak and outbound demand is thus weak because. You know, just because it's more expensive for people in those places to travel abroad. So, uh, you know, Brazil, Argentina and so forth. Uh, you know, those are the places where, where they were hit worst. Leisure demand to Mexican beach resorts, uh, you know, they said was was uh, was weak, too. Uh, but Central America uh, held up well. Uh, the Caribbean, by the way, held up uh, well, too. So uh, not universal weakness. But uh, yeah, certainly in terms of Delta's global network that was the one that seemed to have uh, stuck out as as worse than the others. So as I mentioned, Delta's margin declined two points year over year in the second quarter. In the first quarter, it also declined two points. But Delta's management is talking about again achieving margin gains by the end of the year. Is that a reasonable expectation? Well, it's like I said earlier, right? It's 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 not. I mean, yeah, sure. You look at the cost trends and you think, how can that be possible? But that you know, if you can have the revenue rise as much as the costs, then uh, then 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 you're there, right? Um, and this is an airline that uh, well, look, most of these airlines to some degree are moderating their capacity plans for for later in the year uh i always read that one of the, the, the like reading the 
Wall Street equity analyst reports to sort of see their their take on on these things. And one of them, uh, Hunter K from uh, Wolf Research, puts out his uh, weekly capacity tracker, sort of looking at these very fine, uh, you know, even even just small movements in in. Uh, um, in airline uh, capacity plans, uh, and, and reading that, and reading other sources, and just looking at the schedules of like in Do ourselves, you know, we can see, yeah, these airlines are are uh, moderating their capacity plans. So, look, if if um, well, especially if fuel prices can continue leveling off as they've been doing here very recently, and if the economy remains strong, uh, and if these airlines do continue moderating their capacity plans you know just bringing down their their growth rates then sure that's that's all absolutely a recipe for for uh for margin gains uh already as you said in in the face even of these these big fuel uh, cost increases you know sure that two point slip year over year is not that much um so if things can get just a little bit better um you you, you could imagine them to actually be uh, Sure, you can imagine being more profitable uh, later this year than they were late last year when they were still very much in the throes of fuel prices rising very rapidly and everybody kind of trying to get their hands around that. Uh, there's always, we've talked about in past like episodes, there's always lag time uh, between the fuel price movements and airlines being able to pass through the cost increases to consumers because, again, we've talked about this, they don't truly pass it through. It's not a cost plus business where they just kind of add up all the costs and then tax something on for profit and you know charge that. All they can do is charge what the market will bear. Uh, you know what people are willing and able to pay for 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 air travel. Uh, so they don't control the prices per se, but what they do control is the capacity. And that's how you squeeze up uh, airfares if you're an airline is you reduce capacity and then it's just supply and demand economics. Uh, and so, yeah, looking forward uh, would be no surprise at all if, if they do indeed manage to uh, uh, to achieve those those margin gains. But it would count on the economy remaining strong. Well, either that or fuel prices just dropping a lot from where they are right now. But, you know, if you had high fuel prices and a weaker economy than where things are right now, then it would get tough again. Uh, you know, or vice versa, you know, just far higher fuel prices and, and a constant economy that too would make it make it tougher. Final question. Delta's management wants Delta to be to be a recession proof airline. And they have strung together for many years now an unprecedented streak of, well, terrific performance. But they've done it amid a good to great economy. Can they do it during a recession? Yeah, this is, you know, just a, a, a lot of years now of, of economic expansion. And if you just sort of quickly look at a high level, okay, well, what about last time we were in a recession, let's say 2009, Delta lost money then. Um, in fact, they lost a billion dollars uh, back then. And so you say, well, okay, how, how, how could that not be the case this time? And there's some other reasons why you know the industry's just changed, consolidation and all the rest of it. But what's interesting is that even that year, that billion dollar loss was $1.2 billion was was driven by uh, a huge loss due to bad fuel hedges. Delta back then was was heavily hedged. Actually, it actually protected them in 2008. I mean, 2008 was a rough year too. Uh, the economy didn't fall off the cliff until late, late in the year, but fuel prices were extraordinarily high. But because Delta was very heavily hedged uh, and, and because sort of global travel demand for much of the year had remained okay, they, they, they managed uh, through the fuel price spike. What they didn't manage through 
was was 2009 when the when the economy was awful so demand was weak and on the other hand they didn't even get the big discount they should have been getting from from the falling fuel prices then because of those same hedges they had all these wrong way hedges anyway though if you if you, if you sort of set aside those hedges they actually didn't do that badly in 2009 um without them so even back then even before all the other reforms in the u.s industry and at delta in particular uh you know an edged an unhedged delta wouldn't have had a very bad 2009 and now this is an airline that is you know basically unhedged uh, you know they have their, their fuel refinery their own fuel refinery which is sort of a, a you know itself a, a natural hedge but anyway you know so so uh between that fact and and just everything else that's happened all the consolidation i mean back in 2009 i guess it was yeah just just delta and northwest that was the only of the giant mergers that had happened right southwest airtran hadn't yet happened uh not to mention united continental and american u.s airways uh so between all of it uh, yeah, the consolidation and just the fact that 2009 itself wasn't as bad uh, as 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 it looked. Uh, if you set aside those hedges, you know, yeah, I, I think what they're saying is is reasonable. Yeah, I think everybody wants to actually see it happen. Well, not that anybody wants a recession, but if there's going to be a recession, it would be you know good to actually see airlines confirm what they've been saying. Uh, you know, American has been even bolder. Remember, Doug Parker said, you know, we're never going to lose money again. Um, you know, so so uh, yeah, sure. There's no question things are are more favorably structured now than they were a decade ago. Uh, but of course, everybody wants to actually see it happen instead of just uh, hear all the all the reasons why why theoretically it should be true. All right, enough gushing about Delta. Let's thank our sponsor, Cellpoint Mobile, a leading provider of mobile-first technology solutions for the global airline industry. Visit www.cellpointmobile.com voyage aw to learn about Voyage, their branded configurable booking engine designed specifically for your airline and the needs of your passengers. Let's move from the sublime to the ridiculous. While Delta posted a 16% margin, Norwegian went another route. Their second quarter operating profit margin was a negative 3%. And if you consider Norwegian to be an airline that's in the hole, they are still digging. ASKs grew 48% in the second quarter. Seth, what do you make of that? Yeah, uh, not exactly an airline that's 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 growing profitably, right? And, and by the way, you, you might see some headlines out there about oh, you know, Norwegian managed the surprise profit and and so forth. They 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 reported an official net profit it was thirty eight million dollars, um, but that's that included some special items. Take those away, and yeah, they lost seventy five million dollars net. And that that negative three percent operating margin in what should be a, a an okay quarter, second quarter is is you know should be second best quarter of the year if you're a European airline. Uh, that negative three percent was actually worsened from negative one percent uh, the same quarter year earlier. They are just about to do the math here, but uh, they were let's see already at a negative eight percent on an annual basis before that negative three percent. They're just about at negative uh, double digit loss margins, which would make them you know that's that's where Air Berlin was at the end negative ten percent, right? Then Norwegian's still solvent. I want to be clear, you know, Air Berlin of course wasn't. That's why they went out of business. But yeah, just just in terms of their operating results, they're getting down there to those kinds of uh, of levels. Uh, look, uh, the revenues rose 32%. Great, but costs rose 
34%, right? So there, so there you go, that gap, gap between you know, those costs rising even faster than the revenues on that, as you said, 48% capacity growth uh, added all up. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's why they're uh, losing even more. I mean, look, fuel costs spiked. They paid 84% more for fuel than they did a year earlier. But, you know, everybody paid more for, for, for fuel, almost everybody anyway. And so, uh, yeah, this is an airline that the more it grows, the more money it loses, um, so forth, uh, so far rather. Don't forget, you know, IAG, the parent company of British Airways, Siberia, uh, you know, Voiling Eurolingus, uh, you know, bought five percent of Norwegian. They'd like to buy the whole thing. Norwegian has so far basically said, "No thanks, we can do this on our own." You know, this is one where, yeah, the, I think everybody's waiting for them to show some signs of of at least uh, improvement. And the third quarter, the quarter we're in now, is is just going to be absolutely critical um you know last year they uh they, they made some money in the third quarter but not nearly enough to offset all the losses uh the rest of the year uh and, and this year they would have to have a really outstanding third quarter uh to offset what have been even worse results uh so far in the in the first and second quarter and it doesn't sound like they're off to a good start they talked about you know bookings that were impacted by uh, what has been actually a, a, a mild weather in in uh, in Scandinavia, in their home region, uh, and when it's not too cold up there, then you people don't you know necessarily run to the sun uh, in in the summer down to Spain. They have a huge base at Palma de Mallorca, for example, and uh, so yeah, it, it doesn't sound like this is going to be this absolute bang up third quarter so far that they would need. Uh, to start turning things around because they do need something uh, in order to begin riding the ship. Norwegian is at least taking a lot of steps. They are planning to reduce their growth rate. They are launching an airline in Argentina. They are raising capital by selling shares, and they might sell their loyalty plan. They're adding routes to Florida and venturing into Canada. Do any of these things fill you with confidence? No. Care to elaborate? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I guess more precisely, yeah, the, the, the reduction in growth is is uh, is is good. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. Um, you know, just mathematically, as the base becomes bigger, you're not going to grow by the same percentage rate, uh, even if you're adding this the same amount of capacity. Uh, but that's that's been a huge problem for them. This is something I remember we talked about it in a very recent episode. Um, how just kind of by definition, when you are growing really quickly as an airline, um, you you know a big percentage of your flying is immature markets, and those just don't tend to be profitable. It just usually you know when you launch a brand new market, it takes time to develop. Uh, that's true for all airlines, but when a really big percentage of everything you're doing is new markets, and when new markets tend to not be profitable, uh, you know just just. That fact by itself means that it's going to be hard to make money. So, uh, so reducing the growth and just sort of you know, having it be that just naturally more of your network is mature, you know, has been operating more than twelve months. Let's say uh, that's that should be helpful. But the rest of it, I mean, um, the, the, you know, the 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 new operation in Argentina, yeah, I I I, um, I can't remember advising too many companies in trouble that the way to you know, find salvation is to set up shop in Argentina. Um, you know, that doesn't seem to be any more true for an airline than it than it is for uh, for anybody else. Their idea there, you know, they think it's a counter cyclical thing that you know 
South America peaks in the winter, so you send some planes down there. You know, when demand is 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 uh, weak in the northern hemisphere, and uh, you know, there's some logic to that. But but the expenses of doing that, um, you know, a ferrying aircraft all the way down there uh, for something that's kind of dubious to begin with. Let's put it this way: um, if if other more successful European airlines aren't doing that. IAG would like to find some kind of counter cyclical thing to do with their aircraft, right? I mean, you know, Ryan or whoever else, right? All these airlines are, are impacted by the same seasonality. Uh, and so if all these airlines with, with better track records aren't doing something like that, uh, yeah, just, just hard to think that Argentina is, is going to, uh, or that, that Norwegian rather is going to be the one to strike gold in, uh, in Argentina. Uh, yeah. You mentioned selling their loyalty plan. I don't know. You find me an airline that ever sold its loyalty plan out of strength. Right, rather than out of desperation, uh, not too many examples in the world. Um, you know, generally that's that's an airline uh, sort of essentially taking a very high interest loan. Right, these are these programs can be very profitable, uh, and so sure you take it to market either you know, either you sell the thing to somebody else or you just you do an IPO uh, and, and you know, people will pay you for it, but then you. But then you give up that, uh, the, that that thing that for an airline like Norwegian is probably by far the most successful part of the airline, um, and and uh, and you lose control over that over over that asset. And even having said that, Jason, you know, I'd be curious to see now what the market appetite for one of those plans is going to be because now that everybody has seen, for example, Air Canada, now that it's strong again, taking back, you know, setting up its own in-house plan, uh, dumping. Aeroplan, the, the plan that it spun off back when it was in trouble, you know, just the fact that that can happen, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I think the moment might have passed to get top dollar for these plans because everybody knows that that's uh, a long term possibility. So, priced in, yeah, it, it's it's, um, uh, and as far as Florida and Canada, again, you know, sort of the more long haul they've been doing, the less money they've earned. You know, I have no reason to think that sort of this the earliest stuff that they did. It, domestic Norway and some short haul Europe uh, isn't still the most profitable thing they do, and and sort of the less of the less a percentage of the whole company that becomes, the less money uh, they they seem to lose. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, and, and look, I I don't root against them. I I I I will be thrilled to have our first conversation when they finally at least have a quarter when the you know when they've improved year over year where even if it wasn't great at least you know things are moving in the right direction but uh you know, certainly wasn't this past quarter and like i said the signs so far the way they're talking about the third quarter make it sound like uh it's not going to be the next one either but it, but it's but having said that it's we're only you know, less than three weeks into the third quarter so let's let's hope they can uh, they can turn things around all right in other news JetBlue has ordered 60 a220 300s with an option for 60 more eight a220? That's what I said. A220 300s with an option for 60 more. And if you don't know what an A220 300 is, that's the new name for Bombardier's CS300. The name change happened earlier this month when Airbus partnered with, partnered with Bombardier. So now we're seeing an order for the C-Series from JetBlue. And just a few weeks ago, we learned that the new airline Moxie will be going with the C-Series as well. How much do these two orders mean to the C-Series, now the A220 program, and how much does Airbus's involvement have to do with these sales, if any? Well, I, I think it's meaningful uh, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, JetBlue has a longstanding relationship with Airbus. 
Uh, they also, by the way, have a longstanding relationship with Embraer, uh, whose planes they they didn't buy here. But uh, you know, now you know Airbus, yeah, with with uh, with control of that program, uh, the the former C series now the A two twenty, and um, so you know you have a chance here to do uh, to deal just with you know with one supplier essentially, and and part of this they did restructure. They said, oh, we're going to take you know a 321s instead of a 320s the newly engine ones and the os uh so you know you have those kinds of you know that kind of flexibility which you wouldn't have had uh if these were two separate programs before and also i think there's just a certain amount of confidence that airlines have now that they're dealing with airbus that this program has a real future and that was very much in question i mean nobody ever questioned the technological potential of of, of the c series you know that's that was the first reason why gear turbofan engines existed, the, the Pratt & Whitney engines. And then it was kind of Airbus that came in and co-opted that, uh, you know, threw new engines onto the A320 to, to uh, basically defend itself against the C-Series. Anyway, you know, it was, was always, everybody had a lot of optimism about, you know, the airplane itself, how it could perform. But did you want to go start a whole new relationship with Bombardier if you didn't have one, if you were already doing a lot of business with uh, with Boeing or Airbus and, and you know, and all the, and just, you know, could you count on this, this, this financially troubled program where you're going to go out and spend billions of dollars on aircraft for a program that who knew what was going to happen to Bombardier, you know, for a while there. And, uh, you know, it's an ability to support the program going forward. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think it, it matters a lot, um, that Airbus is there, both in terms of what, what it can do with pricing, with, uh, you know, just sort of bundling things with the rest of its, its products and, and just, um, and just giving airlines the, uh, the, the, the confidence that that they want when they're going to bet big on on a uh, new kind of aircraft. And if anybody wants to learn more about JetBlue's A220 ambitions, they should check out the July 16th edition of Airline Weekly. We had a pretty detailed write-up about it. So uh, Bombardier has partnered with Airbus on the C-Series. Meanwhile, Boeing is forming a joint venture with, you guessed it, Embraer. I have three questions regarding this. Uh, What's Boeing's motivation here? Is it really a response to the Airbus Bombardier agreement? And if so, do you find it strange that a company as big as Boeing would make such a move in response to what competitors are doing? It just seems a little hasty. Writing down those three questions, Jason, because <laughs> it's a lot to remember. But... I'll go. I'll go back through them if you want. <laughs> no. So, uh, so first, uh, and by the way, to, to one other thing, I just want to mention. Uh, you mentioned Moxie before. Um, the uh, you know apparent new airline for for uh, David Nealman, but B- B- Bloomberg had a had a report this week that um that they're close on the on the well it's now the A two twenty, but uh, but no commitment yet there. So we'll so we'll have to watch that. But you know all signs do indeed uh, point to that. Uh, you asked what Boeing mot- Boeing's motivation. Well, it, I mean clearly, look, Airbus did what it did with Bombardier, and and Boeing you know probably just just felt like it had to act, uh, had to have a bigger. Uh, product suite. Yes, if it's a response to 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 the Airbus Bombardier agreement. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think so. Um, uh, you know, I I don't think Boeing would have gone first on that. You know, the reality is that that Airbus and uh, Bombardier, well, and, and the C series in particular, which is which is what we're talking about. I want to be clear, by the way, Bombardier still has other programs that are outside the voice joint venture that they're marketing on their own, the CRJ series and the uh, uh, and the Q400 turboprops. But here we're talking about the C-series, which is now the A220, which Airbus is marketing and owns half of. You know, those, those they're just well aligned. Um, you know, one of the engine options on the Airbus 320 Neos, those are those gear turbofan 
Pratt & Whitney engines, which are, you know, which are the engines that are on the uh, the A220. And it was there whereas Boeing's 737 Maxes, for example, they don't have that as an engine option. So uh, it, it just lined up well, um, Airbus and 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 uh, the C series, and then Boeing. Um, you know, basically looks around and says, okay, who's left? Uh, and not that there's not a lot to like about Embraer's E-Jets. E it's the E-2 or the newly engined E-Jets, um, but they are also just what was left. Uh, so it's you know, kind of in the same regard as, well, if you want to think of it in airline terms, right? Uh, Delta merged with Northwest, uh, United merged with Continental. For American and U.S. Airways, they were just kind of what was left, right? Uh, and it's not to say that they might not have also, you know, uh, wanted to merge anyway. Um, but that's sometimes that's just a, a part of it. You know, when the music stops, um, uh, who doesn't yet have a chair? And and in this case, that was uh, just just sort of the the uh, the natural alignment with Boeing. Um, uh, buying in its case an even bigger percentage, right, eighty percent of uh, the you know the eJet program. So yeah, and they'll they'll benefit now from a from an ability to uh, market their aircraft jointly. You know, to do a deal that involves seven thirty seven maxes. You know, maybe some you know max eights uh, as well as some e one ninety five e twos let's say and, and and perhaps even even uh, a smaller variants so uh so that i mean yeah I, I i think it's 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 tough to say that this is anything other than a defensive move but that doesn't mean it'll it'll uh, it'll be a bad thing uh and so yeah let's let's see if 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 they can get some momentum there because that program too you know probably not living up to the expectations embra air had for some some specific reasons, uh, you know, the the E one seventy five, which is the airplane that U.S. carriers should love. Uh, it's you know kind of that seventy six seater replacement for the you know for the current E one seventy fives or for you know, CRJ nine hundreds and so forth that are out there doing outsourced missions, flying with SkyWest and Republic and uh, Mesa and so forth. So the the new 175s are a little too heavy to comply with pilot scope clauses. Uh, and this plane that Embraer hoped would just fly off the shelves at these, uh, these U.S. airlines just, just isn't selling. And if they can't solve that, uh, then, then, you know, that program, uh, will, will remain, uh, troubled, but, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, Obviously, Airbus and the C series, but where the C series are better uh, together, and yeah, uh, you have to imagine that Boeing uh, and and Embraer Air will will be better together than they were in some small way anyway. Uh, competing, Boeing also gets some you know gets some some new technical expertise from from Brazil. Um, again, these are planes that you know it's it's they have marketing issues, but but it's you know technologically they they uh, they should be great planes. You know, perhaps an ability to 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 access a lower cost manufacturing base uh, uh, down in Brazil, although Boeing will have to be careful with its own uh, U.S. workforce, unions, and so forth uh, in terms of doing that. So, uh, so yeah, no, it's it's uh, you know they wouldn't have done it without Airbus doing what it did. I don't think, but on the other hand, they also wouldn't have done it if it didn't make sense in its own right. Let's talk about mainline airlines that start low cost airlines within their airlines. In our view, this was a dubious strategy not too many years ago, but things could be changing. The latest piece of evidence is Peach, a low-cost airline started by Japan's All Nippon. Peach recently reported its full-year results, and margin-wise, they exceeded ANA's mainline results. Seth, it seems that launching Peach was a good idea for ANA. 
Yeah, 11% uh, operating margin at Peach compared to 8% at, at Mainline uh, on the pond. Um, so, yeah, this is one that's going well. And then there are others. Um, you know, Jetstar at Qantas uh, has clearly been a success. Others where it's a little harder to say. I mean, you know, Air, Air Canada um, uh, seems happy with Rouge. And, 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 Look, they they want to grow the thing, so that's evidence that they're not it's not just talk. I mean, I don't think they would they would be looking to to, to grow it if it if it, you know, if it um, wasn't doing reasonably well. Uh, Scoot at Singapore Airlines, it's not printing money, but it's but it's it's profitable. And Jin uh, uh, Air in Korea, that's that's uh, you know, Korean Airs unit is 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 doing very well. So yeah, after all these years of you know Delta Express, Song, MetroJet, Shuttle by United, Ted Continental Light. Snowflake, Go, Buzz, Tango, Zip. I'm just reading. A, I don't think I just thought of all of those that quickly. I'm reading from a list that we made in the in the issue. You know, finally, there are some examples of it working, and I think an interesting discussion going forward will be: okay, well, why do uh, you know a few of them work where others don't? Uh, it clearly, has something to do with how much autonomy the unit has uh, to do its own thing. There's always that struggle, right? Is it are you going to let it compete against the mainline unit? You know, in some regard, that's not helpful. But on the other hand, if if it's sort of managed too closely to the mainline unit, then it just kind of ceases to be a low cost unit and just becomes kind of a, a complexity of maybe a low fare unit that doesn't really have low costs. Those have been the issues over time. So, you know, this is something we'll have to continue to watch here. And then, you know, too early to say that airlines should go run out and do this because, again, there are still plenty of examples, including plenty of recent examples where. It, you know where it hasn't gone well. Uh, El Al, just the most recent one to kind of you know, say never mind with its low cost offshoot and fold it back into uh, into mainline. But uh, yeah, an, an interesting uh, uh, trend at least that we need to continue watching here. That it's it's no longer impossible or, or near maybe nearly impossible even to make money with these airlines. And real quick, I'm not making this up. Peach is merging with Vanilla. <laughs> Vanilla Air is the is a so that's a wholly owned unit of all Nippon. Peach was actually set up as a joint venture. Uh, so then there's wholly owned Vanilla Air, which was originally supposed to be Air Asia Japan. Now Air Asia Japan then launched, but with somebody else, it's all very confusing. Anyway, Vanilla Air uh, is its own thing, uh, and yeah, they're putting those two together, those two flavors, Peach and Vanilla Air. And all I can say is that if they don't serve peach cobbler with a scoop of vanilla ice cream on top for dessert. I don't want to fly them. All right. And on that flavorful note, we'll <laughs> wrap this up. Episode 101 of the Airline Weekly Lounge. As always, if you like the show, share it with your colleagues. They can subscribe to the Airline Weekly Lounge through iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever they get their podcasts. They can also subscribe at airlineweekly.com. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. Thanks for spending some time with us. This episode was sponsored by CellPoint Mobile, a travel technology solutions provider. Visit www.cellpointmobile.com slash voyage aw to learn about Voyage, a mobile and internet booking solution designed specifically for airlines and travelers. That's www.cellpointmobile.com slash voyage aw